Thank you, Ben and Roger and Jeff and Demetrius for uh, helping us in worship this morning. I want to say welcome once again to our assembly. If you and I have never met, my name is Mark. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at uh, MacArthur Park. And if we've not had an opportunity to, to meet and to greet, uh, I would love the opportunity to meet you today. And if, if, as you're going through the family room, our big foyer out there on the other side of these big doors over here, there's a green wall over to the right. I'll be the short guy standing in front of the green wall. I'd love for you to come by and let's have a chance to meet and to talk and to visit and to get to know one another. And I would invite you to do that before you get out into the parking lot and leave today. The other thing I would invite you to do is to reach inside of your bulletin and pull out the, uh, the insert that you find inside, inside of the bulletin. On one side of it, it's going to have the letters MPG. And MPG is just a, an exercise. It's a um, it's a group of exercises, really, that we put together each week to help you take the sermon a little bit further down the road, to make it more applicable, to, to think about it a little bit longer. And hopefully the Word of God and, and some of the things we're going to be talking about this morning will, will become embedded in your heart and become a way that you not only see the world, but the way that you live in the world as we try to share the gospel and, and to be an agent for change, gospel change, kingdom of God change in the world. And so M stands for memorize, P stands for pray, and G stands for glorify. And so there's something to memorize, something to pray about, and either a practical thing to do during the week as it pertains to the message, or some, some reflection questions, some things to think about and to ponder, maybe even study in the Bible uh, sometime this week, in addition to your usual study that will help you grow in the grace of God. And then on the other side is the sermon outline. As you can see, we are in the second message of a series of lessons on grace that we're coordinating with our Sunday morning Bible classes, adult Bible classes, as we think about grace. Now, this is the second lesson. And one of the things that we discovered last week is that the word charis, or the word grace in English, actually means gift. And that is a very literal way to understand the word charis, or the word grace, but it's also a very accurate way. But there is a danger to think only in terms of a gift, in, in just the ways that we think about a gift. The, the problem is that we live in a culture that makes it really easy to, to oversimplify, or to be simplistic in our thinking, or to be one-dimensional in our thinking. And one-dimensional thinking can be very dangerous because it's always going to diminish the object to something less than it really is. I'll say that again. One-dimensional thinking is dangerous because it diminishes the object to something less than it really is. And one of the flags or one of the telltale signs that we may be encountering some simplistic or one-dimensional thinking is that we read or we hear the words, is just. A Corvette is just a car. The Beatles is just a rock band. A husband is just a paycheck. A wife is just a cook and a housekeeper. The Bible is just a book. Or Christianity is just one of many religions. I mean, you get the idea. Now, here is where we get into danger when we think one-dimensionally about grace. We think grace is just the forgiveness of my sins. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Salvation is a gift, and it is about the forgiveness of our sins. Salvation is a free gift from God, like there's any other kind. And if you'll remember that Paul in the second chapter of the letter we call Ephesians has really just sort of dedicated that entire chapter to describing how 
Salvation is by grace. It is a gift and not by works. But grace is more than just the forgiveness of sins. And this is why we have to listen again carefully to what it is that Peter says to the church, even though he wrote it 2,000 years ago. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18, he says, But, say it with me, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, last week, as we jumped into this topic of grace, we defined grace, and again, we don't want to be one-dimensional, we don't want to be simplistic, but we do have sort of a starting definition that gets our mind wrapped around the greatness of God's grace. And that starting definition is this. Grace is God's goodness for the good of humans. God's grace is God's goodness for the good of humans. And where we begin is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We saw specifically in the creation account where God's goodness is already working for the good of humans before God even created humans. We saw that God's grace, we saw that God's gift, God's activity, God's, God's works, His gifts to humans were there waiting for us even before we arrived on the scene which means that even before there was a human being, before there was a you and a me, God was meeting our physical needs with a vibrant and a beautiful and a fertile creation where we could flourish and thrive and grow. So he begins with physical needs, but then later on in the creation account, we also see that there are emotional needs. God creates both man and woman, male and female, in order to take care of one another. And we're going to see as we continue the creation story this morning that God is also going to take care of our spiritual needs. So our physical needs, emotional needs, and spiritual needs. God's grace. Now, you probably don't know this about me, but I am a recovered master of disaster in the kitchen. I am Captain Messy. I am the king of dirty dishes. Now, I love to cook. I love to cook because I love to eat. But I'm also one of those cooks who uses every pot, every pan, every dish, every utensil in the kitchen in order to create one of the messiest kitchens you've ever seen. Ta-da! I have created some doozies. And Ellen will come into the kitchen and sometimes kind of tease me a little bit because she'll say, you know, you need every dish, you need every pot, every pan, everything in order to make something simple like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The truth. In fact, one time she came into the kitchen after I'd been cook, cooking lasagna, if you can imagine that, and she said, we need to sell the house and move. You know, we got to get out of here. But that's the thing about Ellen. Ellen uh, is one of those uh, cooks that as she cooks, she cleans. And I'm not. In fact, in our whole household, we might say it this way, there's one who messes up and there's one who cleans up. One that messes up and one that's going to clean up. Now, back to creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we are told the story of a loving God who graciously created the earth as a place human beings would flourish and thrive. And as we saw in the reading that Demetrius just did, that he creates this world with just one rule. And we read in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat, must not eat 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree you can't eat, the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So great earth, great earth, great earth, one rule. We could describe life with God at the beginning of creation this way. Maximum love and minimum law. Maximum love and minimum law. In the Garden of Eden, there was more beauty than we could absorb. There was more food than we could consume. There was more peace than we could appreciate, more joy than we could describe. There were more blessings than we could count. There was more God than we could imagine. There were lots of eat trees, and there was only one not-eat tree. And quite frankly, friends, that's what the world looked like when it was right side up. It was maximum love, minimum law. And then Genesis 3 rolls around. In verse 1, one of the creatures, serpent, we read was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's the very first verse of Genesis chapter 3. Eve hears what the serpent says, understands what he's saying, and responds. He says, Yes, we can't even touch it or we will die. Not exactly accurate, but she's got the gist. The serpent then responds says, You will certainly not die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be what? Opened, and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the serpent leaves and leaves Adam and Eve alone in order to make up their minds. And, I, you know, we don't know if there's a debate. We don't know if they have an argument. We don't know what kind of discussion they have. But at some point, doubt about the validity of God's Word. The Word that was able to create the heavens and the earth that was powerful enough to do that, is it powerful enough to trust? And they debate, and at some point, Doubt about God gets a toehold in Eve's heart. She sees that it's great-looking fruit. She takes, eat, gives the husband, he eats. And despite the maximum love and minimal law of creation, despite the experience of beauty and of food and of peace and joy and blessing, and despite the experience of God himself, we read, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing, that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. What we have here is the first recorded act of human initiative. The first recorded act of human initiative. And in the first recorded act of human initiative, what we find are the human beings stepping out of God's grace. And sin enters into the world. The world is going to be turned upside down. Everything is going to become a mess. It is the end of life as they know it. And up until today, life is out of whack. 
And Adam and Eve do what, what most children do when they do something that makes their parent upset. When my children were very small and they did something that they knew I was going to be upset about, they made themselves scarce. I mean, who wants to be in dad's presence when you know that you're guilty of something, right? Adam and Eve hide from God. And it's not as if God doesn't know what's happening or what has happened. God knows what has happened, but he asks a question. And the asking of the question is not for his sake. I mean, like every good parent has ever done in the history of having kids, when your kid does something wrong, what's the first thing you ask? What have you done? Well, you know what they've done. The question is for their sake. God asked the question for Adam and Eve's sake. And he asked the question, where are you? And Adam says, oh, I was hiding because I was naked. And God asked, who told you that? Did you eat from the tree, the one tree, all of this maximum love, this minimum law, the one tree that I said, don't eat? And Adam has started what every human has done as a tradition since then. He throws both God and Eve under the bus and takes no blame himself. She's here because you made her, and she's the one who did it. But God is God and nothing less. Humans are human and nothing more. God is God and nothing less. And God doesn't buy it. And he begins in the, the rest of Genesis chapter 3, he begins to describe what the future of a sinful world is going to look like. Now, before we go through that description of what a sinful fallen creation is going to look like, let's review, once again, three of the big words that we find in the Bible as they pertain to justice and mercy and grace. This is how we started out last week, defining these words and giving us kind of a subtle understanding of the differences. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Now, God tells Adam and Eve that there is going to be justice. There's going to be some consequences for their decision-making and for their actions. He says, childbearing is going to be a really, really painful thing. The relationship between men and women, well, it's not going to be very easy. In fact, the relationship between men and women, it's going to be a little messy. The earth is going to be cursed, which is a Hebrew word, which means that obstacles are going to, to, to be found all over the place. And that those obstacles are going to be called or defined as thorns and thistles. The world is now going to be a place of thorns and thistles. And, and food is not going to come easily, but it's going to come by the sweat of your brow. Now, we'll talk about this more next week. But notice what God has done. God simply spins their rejection of life around so that they can now feel the full force of it for themselves. And then mercifully, the humans are going to die, but not immediately, which now just leaves grace. And to understand the grace in this, patch, uh, this passage, we need to go back to the conversation at the beginning of what the earth is going to look like and hear, again, the words that God says to the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then, what is this word? Say it together. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, in these two verses, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, what we have of what theologians and scholars have called the Proto-Evangelium, which means, it's a Latin term, the first preaching of the gospel, the free, first good news. Now, in verse 15, that's where we read the singular pronoun, he. He is, is not plural. God is not saying to the serpent that he, that is all of humanity, all of the he's from here on out. He's talking about one particular he. God says that there is a he that is coming who will destroy the serpent and will destroy everything the serpent represents. Who is that he? Say it out loud. Jesus! Here we find in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of the Bible, we think of grace as kind of this New Testament thing. At the very beginning, the first three chapters, is just chock full of references and understandings of what it means for God to be a God of grace. This is foreshadowing of Jesus coming. Jesus is the He that is coming, who will die on the cross, not only to save us from our sins, but also give us an opportunity at a new life to be transformed, to become the human beings that we were always meant to be. The strike that is going to be on the heel of Jesus is his death on the cross, but it will not be fatal. Jesus will die on the cross, will be buried for three days, but will resurrect from the dead on the third day to eternal life, defeating our enemies the biggest of which in that, in that context is death. Now, we leave Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 just for a second. And we're going to go all the way over to Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul, is, you know, Paul has been talking about, about the greatness of, 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 of sin. And he has gone you know, through the first couple of chapters just talking about how nobody can save themselves. There's nobody that is able to save themselves because the, the sinfulness and the fallenness of human beings is just so profound and deep. There's no way we can get ourselves off the ground. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, he says, you know, he says, we all fall short of the glory of God because we all sin. And then at the end of chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 6, he begins to talk about baptism but it's, and, and how that saves us and, and our connection to, to God's grace and the cross of Jesus and participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But in the fifth chapter, about the middle of it, he begins to anticipate a question. How is it that, that the death of one person on the cross can be so powerful? And what Paul says is that, well, just think about what one man, the first Adam, was able to do and think about what the second Adam is able to do. So in Romans 5, Paul is contrasting the first Adam, the Adam we've been reading about in Genesis chapter 3, with the second Adam 
who is Jesus, who is a type of second Adam to come. Now, there's a lot happening in Romans chapter 5, but I can summarize it in just two statements. Statement number one, the first Adam was the door for sin and death to enter. Death and sin, sin enter into life, enter into creation, enter into the world, enter into your life, enter into my life, enter into the life of every person we've ever known, plus it is corrupted and caused decay throughout all of God's creation. The first Adam was that door. Adam was the door that allowed sin to come into the world. Sin then becomes the door by which death comes to all humans, and death comes to all humans because all humans sin. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through what? One man. And death through sin, and in this way, death comes to all from the one, because all have sinned. So Adam becomes the door in which all of the bad stuff comes into the world, of which we have been experiencing it second by second, day by day, year by year, all of our lives for all of history. But then the good news is that there is a second door. The second Adam is the door for righteousness and for life to enter. Notice what he says in verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, which one man is he talking about? Adam. The many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the, say it together, one man who is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Then we drop down to verses 20 and 21, where sin increased, where sin increased, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You want to say amen to that? So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we're going to talk more about that uh, next week. But you'll remember that our beginning definition, our first definition of grace went like this. Grace is God's goodness for the good of humans. A second definition would go like this. Grace is God's goodness coming to the rescue of humans. You've been rescued. I've been rescued from, from, from the sin that is dragging me down into death. And the, the first Adam was in the garden, and the temptation came. Are you going to trust God? All the things that you have experienced, from the physical needs to the emotional needs, that God, through His grace, through His love, through His gifts, has blessed you with, God's word that is powerful enough to create everything is it going to be powerful enough for us to trust? And the answer was no. Thus is the world. Thus have we made it. But then there was a second Adam who on the night he was betrayed is in a garden. And he's standing on the precipice of looking into his crucifixion and his death. 
is taking on all of our sins and seeing where our sins would presumably take us is going to take him. And he is so consumed with that that there's a temptation. Father, I don't want to drink this cup. Will you let this cup pass from me? And he's so consumed with it that he is actually, he is so, so deeply in turmoil in this that he is sweating drops of blood in his sweat. And when it came down to trusting the will of God, he said that your will, not mine, be done. That your will be done, not mine. And the second Adam in the garden is then arrested and taken to the cross and taken to the grave. And then on the third day, on that first Sunday, resurrects the newness of life that all who might trust in Him and put their faith in Him and repent of their life, turn away from that old way of living and confess that right now, from this day forward until the day that I see Jesus face to face, Jesus is going to be my Lord. And for those that are baptized and have their sins washed away and participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, through that kind of trust of God's Word and God's presence and God's nature and God's character and God Himself, there is life, newness of life. And if there's any way that we might minister to you somehow today, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. Ben's going to lead us in a song of praise right now. We would ask that you come down and make those needs known as we stand and we praise God together.